independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. People are just what they are. We are selfish creatures, I myself included. And let's play into that and come up with solutions that play into that habit. Those will be the real breakthrough ones, the ones that really scale and create meaningful impact. Instead of getting people to go against their will and desires to sacrifice things for sustainability, what if we just acknowledge that most of us are selfish and learn to play into that? How did we even get to our global waste crisis today? And what do we need to do to really address this issue at a national and global level? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like to receive highlights from the podcast that can hopefully provide you with another dose of inspiration throughout the week, you can subscribe for free at greendreamer.com. And with that, you'll also automatically be entered to win our monthly giveaways. So again, that's greendreamer.com to sign up. And now to our episode. Let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of TerraCycle, which is an innovative recycling company that's becoming a global leader in recycling hard-to-recycle waste. He started this company when he was a student at Princeton University and actually dropped out in 2003 after his freshman year to build the business. To date, over 80 million people in 21 countries have helped to collect and recycle enough waste to raise over $21 million for charities around the world through TerraCycle. Clearly, he's really been able to scale his positive impact across the nation and now across the world. And for this, he's personally won more than 50 awards for entrepreneurship. He also blogs for numerous websites and has authored a few books, one of which is publishing in January of 2019 called The Future of Packaging, From Linear to Circular. Green Dreamer is starting with what inspired his passion for nature. Here's Tom Zaki. So my story is I was born in uh, Budapest, which was still communist at the time. And uh, from there, uh, we left when Chernobyl happened. So a major environmental disaster when I was four years old, you know, sort of got us moving and leaving Hungary. And then we ended up as refugees in Germany and then Holland and then finally landed in Canada. So the first real major change in my life came from a massive environmental disaster. And that ended up having me land in Canada, which is an incredible country for environmentalism. A lot of Canadians, you know, deeply care about the environment and makes sense because it's just a, you know, big, beautiful country that celebrates that. Then from there, you know, I came down to the States for, for college and there really picked up the love of entrepreneurialism. And it was 
combining those two things, you know, my appreciation for the environment with entrepreneurialism that begot TerraCycle and where we are today. So how did you first get into the recycling world? It's an interesting question. You know, I uh, first sort of woke up to call it the Western point of view on waste when uh, I landed in Canada. So remember, I came from a country where incredibly poor and there really wasn't garbage in the way we think of it today. You know, people reused and, you know, upcycled and did everything with stuff because it was just so expensive and so hard to get your hands on. And then I remember this super distinctly when I was like nine years old, you know, with my dad in Toronto and Canada, we were driving around and the things people would throw out were astounding. Like I'd never seen a a TV set in my life. And the first one I ever saw, we found in the garbage Mm. and it wasn't just one, but they were like everywhere. People would throw out perfectly fine couches, you know, television sets, you name it. And that really opened my eyes, you know, to the modern idea of waste, which is uh, incredible, you know, to uh, to think about. And from there, uh, and it pertains to the business of waste. Um, you know, I, as I said, I loved entrepreneurialism, but the way they teach entrepreneurialism, especially 15 years ago, was all about profit to shareholders, like that being the purpose of business. Mm-hmm. And I felt that the purpose of business is what it does, or you know, what how it changes the world or society, and the function of business is to do so profitably, but it's not the purpose of. And so I want to try to create a company whose mission was uh, something bigger than profit. And we picked waste because it's just such an interesting topic to me. And uh, that's how it all all began. What gave you the courage to do things differently and to think beyond what you were taught in terms of what entrepreneurship is all about? I think this is sort of the essence of entrepreneurship is this idea of um, challenging the rules and the assumptions. And I think a lot of the rules and the assumptions are broken around waste. A couple of examples, right, are everything in the world becomes waste with no exception. In fact, everything you own will one day be owned by the garbage industry. And the crazy part is you will have paid them to take it when that happens. And for how big the garbage industry is and how everything will one day be its property, it's ridiculously uninnovative. And you know the, the big solutions to garbage are burn it or put it into a pile. And the only things we recycle right now are those things that can be recycled at a profit. And that to me is very uninspired um, and not taking such a gargantuan opportunity. You know, I, I won't even frame it as a problem, but in the business sense, let's call it an opportunity and doing something more with it. You know, and so it's a great chance for us to redefine all the rules, partly because the rules have been defined with very little thought so far. You know, if we were trying to do this in high tech or in pharma, it would be much harder to be so innovative. Uh, it's simply because garbage is a forgotten area. You know, it's not taught in schools. It's not really a topic that's ever academically reviewed. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, but you really saw that there's a lot of value in the things that are just being tossed out, burned, or just left there in landfills. That's right. I think there is a tremendous amount of value And not just the obvious value, like the value of the metal or the value of the plastic, which is more or less all traditional recyclers look at, but many other forms of value as well that can really create some amazing solutions. I'll give you just like sort of a, you know, one we're working on to give you a sense of how far out this can be. We recently created um, the TerraCycle Diagnostic Division, you know, so how would diagnostics ever play with waste? And we've realized that there's a lot of types of garbage, whether it's your razor blade with hair or you know, one's diaper with fecal matter, or one's tampon with blood, or you know, you name it, one's motor oil container with used motor oil, where the waste itself carries a biological sample. 
And imagine if that was the tool to get a sample in that could then be analyzed and give you back uh, helpful information, whether it's on the health of your car or the health of your child, you know, depending on if we're analyzing motor oil or uh, a dirty diaper. That's so interesting. So it's really just looking at these things and thinking about what you can do with them that can add value to people's lives and society. Yeah. And looking at what else they have that has not been celebrated, right? That has not been looked at as a positive. You know, usually the poop in a dirty diaper is seen as a big negative, uh, but could it be a positive, you know? (laughs) Or also questioning the idea uh, of waste as an idea. You know, we're launching a new platform in January that's all about moving away from disposable to durable objects, which ideally eliminates the very concept of waste from existing, all the way to really thinking about how do we recycle things that are not recyclable. Uh, That's a lot of what TerraCycle is known for, and that's all about creating value in waste that's not just in the material, and that helps us effectively recycle the non-recyclable and get funding for it. For sure. So in order to move towards a more sustainable world, we have to really rethink and question the ways that we have been looking at waste and what it is even in general. Exactly, and foundationally question it. Not just question it on, hey, how do we recycle this or how do we make that from more recycled material? Those are really more step innovations, but challenge the entire sort of uh, nomenclature uh, altogether. And then the important part, especially, you know, and this is I, this message is for anyone who's running uh, an environmental or social organization or trying to implement these tactics in their current organization is the framing, right? We don't want to frame any of this as a do-gooder thing, even though it foundationally is, you know, it's not about, let's not frame it in saving the environment. Instead, let's frame it in how this can benefit an organization for paying for it. And that way we release, you know, really robust funding to be able to save the environment and do pretty amazing things. So TerraCycle takes a lot of items that weren't recyclable through conventional recycling facilities, like you mentioned, and you recycle them. So what renders these items unrecyclable for conventional facilities? And how is TerraCycle able to do something with these things? So it's a good question. So we have to take a step back, right, before answering the question and ask the question, what makes something recyclable versus not recyclable? And here's the good news. Everything in the world is technically recyclable with only very few exceptions, right? But most objects out there, 99.99% of them, can be technically recycled, whether it's uh, um, uh, an aluminum can all the way to a toothbrush. But then the question is, why is an aluminum can recyclable in almost every recycling system in the world where they exist, and toothbrushes are not recyclable anywhere except for a system like, like TerraCycle? And the reason is economics, right? What Recyclers are, a good way to frame it to make this make sense is recyclers are urban miners. So a recycling company is mining your garbage for value. And the only thing that it's going to mine is the things that it can mine profitably. So a good example is if, if we were in the same room and I had a kilo of gold, like solid gold, and left it on the floor and said, I don't want this, would you bother picking it up and taking it? Probably. <laughs> What if that was not a kilo of gold, but was a kilo of, uh, uh, let's say, iron? Would you pick it up and take it? Less likely. (laughs) Less likely. And what if it was a a kilo of poo? Would you take it? Probably not. Okay. So all that's changed here is your perception of value, right? The gold you would take enthusiastically because you could sell it and have a bunch of money in your pocket, while the poop you probably couldn't sell to anybody and, in fact, would probably have to pay to get rid of it. And that's the same thing in recycling. 
What people recycle today are the things they can do so profitably. And everything else, like the toothbrush, that uh, would cost more to collect and process is left to be landfilled or incinerated because it's just not economically valuable to recycle it. So then how do you get a toothbrush recycled is you ask, well, who would care disproportionately about a toothbrush and it being recyclable and would potentially pay that economic difference? And so examples include, well, in the U.S., Colgate pays for national toothbrush recycling because they care disproportionately about toothbrushes and wanting to make sure that there is a recycling solution versus other waste streams. Mm-hmm. Or maybe a retailer uh, would fund it. Maybe a retailer like a pharmacy who's maybe disproportionately more into toothbrushes than other things. Maybe it's a dental office. Uh, we have thousands of dental offices across the U.S. who are funding the recycling for toothbrushes because you know they're associated with toothbrushes more than others. And once you've figured out who would fund it, then you figure out what is the best way to enable collection so that you know their stakeholders. So if it's Colgate, they're consumers. If it's uh, a retailer, they're customers. If it's a dental office, they're patients. Uh, to make it easy for those people to actually be able to collect it, and then from there you get it recycled, and off you go. And that's how anything that isn't recyclable today can be. The key is finding other points of value beyond just the plastic that make up that object or the material that makes up that object. So how did you connect the dots to see that? There will be companies interested in funding the difference in that value. So the best way it was, you know, because this is everything TerraCycle does. It's invented more or less from scratch, which is crazy exciting because it's a brand new world. But it's challenging because you sort of have to, like a blind person, you know, walk around the room and find out where the walls are and (laughs) where the chairs are. And then once you know that, you have command of the room. But it takes some time to understand that. So a lot of it is... You know, coming up with ideas, throwing them against the wall, see what sticks and then continue doing what sticks and then throw things against other areas of the wall and see if it sticks there, too. Yeah, I was going to say you really are a pioneer in what you're doing. And I'd love to hear, like, what's been the most difficult part for you turning your ideas into life and growing TerraCycle as a business? You know, I think the well, it's all the classic sort of startup entrepreneurial things, you know, um, raising money, you know, just basically building a business. I think beyond the classic building a business, what's a unique challenge, especially in anything to do with sustainability or environment, is many times what you're paying for is not a physical object. You know, you can't touch it and so on. And so that's a harder thing to to sell or convince people to act on than if I'm just selling you a widget or an object. So what I mean by that is Let's take one of our divisions we call the Zero Waste Box Division. This is a division focused on bringing recycling of hard-to-recycle materials to consumers, like, say, your office or your studio where you're recording this in. So let's just project right to you for a minute. Let's say you're in a, uh, in like a radio studio, and let's say the radio studio has a lot of you know, old media devices like VHS tapes and cassettes and DVDs and these sort of things that you can't recycle locally today. Well, in our zero waste box division, I could sell you a box, probably say about you know a hundred fifty to a hundred dollars that you get in the mail, uh, and you fill it up with those uh, waste media devices, and send it back. All the shipping's included in the price, and then we recycle what's inside. You've now just paid, let's say fifty to a hundred bucks, and you've you haven't gotten anything physically back. Instead. You, you would have a good feeling because now you know that that material was recycled instead of disposed, but that's what you're paying for, right? That's a little harder to get people to do than, you know, go buy a, a orange juice or go buy a car, which is very physical and, you know, you get a slightly different sense of reward for it. 
to build on that, that's a big problem in anything to do with sustainability, right? It's it's many times the reward is not sort of tactic, uh, physical to the person who's paying for it. You know, what if you're dealing with, you know, uh, destruction of rainforest or species reduction or, you know, um, uh, women's rights, you name it. Right. I think a lot of this is also the same in trying to get people to buy less and buy better because a lot of more sustainably made products are more expensive because they actually take into account the costs of uh, producing that product responsibly. You're, you're, you're precisely right, right? And I think that while we hear a lot about people willing to pay more for eco-friendly, sustainable, organic, whatever sort of moniker you want to put on it, I think most people, not all, but most people will not do that when no one's watching, right? And when they're just on their own in the aisle of a supermarket or on their computer, you know, shopping online. And so one of the biggest challenges we have to face as a movement, I think, is to accept that. That's actually really hard to say, people are just what they are. We are selfish creatures, I myself included, right? And let's play into that and come up with solutions that play into that habit, those will be the real breakthrough ones, the ones that really scale and create meaningful impact. So how do you think we can best, number one, uh, get people to understand the value in sustainability, and number two, for people who will still pick things that are just more convenient or at a cheaper cost, how can we, how can we accelerate towards a more sustainable world with these two things in mind? I would say focus on the latter. The real wins, the real game-changing things that will really foundationally make a big impact quickly are things we create that are more sustainable than the alternative and are just better so the person buying them, the consumer, doesn't even have to care at all about sustainability and will still buy that product or that service. That's actually what we should all think about is creating those. Because those will be the wins, the, the ones that will make you more sustainable unconsciously. Then in lieu of not having that, we need to fight a fight that's 10 times harder and you got to keep fighting it, which is convincing people to sacrifice and they'll perceive it as sacrifice to do the right thing. And that may be necessary, but it's much better to convince on the positive. So let me give examples of convincing on the positive to show it's very real. Mm -hmm. Airbnb. Uh, is a great example where it's just a better, better service than going to a hotel, and yet it's way more sustainable and way more circular than having to build hotels and maintain them because you're just you know using others. Uber is the same for cars. Some of the uh, uh, companies in the vegan meat space are doing you know whether it's uh, uh, Impossible Burger, Beyond Meat, companies like Teva Deli in Israel. These are examples of companies that have said we're going to make a burger that tastes better than the beef burger, but from completely vegan sources, right? That's saying, I'm going to go better. I'm not going to ask you to sacrifice and eat something that tastes like cardboard. Just <laughs> because you avoid eating meat, I'm going to actually give you something that tastes even better. Those are the real transformations. And that's the, I think, where most of the focus should go. Unfortunately, most of the focus of the movement goes towards sacrifice-based living. You know, uh, live in the smaller house, bike to work, consume less, right? Don't get me wrong, these are all the answer and super meaningful, but it's not going to attract the masses as quickly as, hey, here's just a better way to live. Oh, and by the way, you're also saving the world while you're doing it. Right. So it's important to lead with the actual product or service um, as standalone things and have sustainability come second and not rely on the sustainability part or guilting people into doing better to choose that product. Yeah, and I, I just want to sort of tweak what you're saying just a little bit. 
the people who are coming up with these ideas should have sustainability at their core, at their focus. Sustainability to the people creating these concepts shouldn't be a by the way, should be the reason of, right? Mm -hmm. But what's going to make that idea big is if the consumer doesn't even have to think about it and is just buying it because it's a better service. Right. So it's like the communication piece. When we bring it out to the world, that's how yes. we get the masses to come. It shouldn't just be communicated to be better. It should just be better. For sure. Right. And that it, those are the magic recipes where it's not preaching uh, and, and convincing, where it's so good. It's, it's like, you know, where have you been? It's obviously better. Right. Yeah. Well, so today you have over 80 million people recycling through TerraCycle, and you've also recycled over 4 billion waste items. I mean, that is massive. What would you say were key to you being able to scale your sustainability solution to this level? Um, yeah, and it's actually even bigger. We're at now, I think, 80 million for the U.S., 200 million people globally. We're in 21 countries, and wow. uh, and it's you know it's a few million pounds of hard to recycle waste materials from dirty diapers to cigarette butts every uh, every week. So it's gotten you know it's gotten good scale. And I think the way we've been able to do it is we are trying our key focus is to make our programs as easy as possible for the average person. Again, it's sort of the earlier thing I was saying, it's not about, you know, that this is for the, you know, the most green person out there. Hopefully the most green person out there will absolutely love it, but probably that person won't even be buying disposable goods, right? The key focus is how do we make it uh, for someone who just wants to do, you know, a little action to do the right thing, make it super easy for them. So I'll give you some examples. In our collection programs, where you could access at TerraCycle.com, many of them are free. Many of them raise money uh, for a school or charity of your choice. And we've given away close to $25 million so far in these donations. Um, and they're made to be incredibly simple. Um, you can either find a public drop-off location, take your waste there, or become one. Um, we give you free shipping labels. Everything is free. And we then layer on incentives. But I'll give you another example. So that's our first division, collecting and recycling hard to recycle materials. Our second division is all about integrating hard to recycle materials back into products. So we run today the world's largest supply chain for ocean plastic and make it into things like the head and shoulders bottle, uh, which is number one shampoo in the world or fairy dish soap, number one dish soap in the world and so on and so forth. And there people now can clean up their local lake or river or beach or ocean simply by buying a bottle of their favorite shampoo. So that makes it, it's all about making it so easy that you don't even have to try. Um, that's what it enables scale. The more you ask the consumer or the person to sacrifice, and sacrifice could simply be spending time, complicated, whatever word it may be, the lower the response will be. For sure. So it's really got to be easy, accessible, and right there, super simple for people as mindless as possible. <laughs> yeah. And now that you've obviously proven concept, what's the big challenge now? Because I read another interview you did on Mind Body Green, where you talked about how the recycling world is looking pretty grim right now. What is yes. that roadblock? Well, the reason recycling is trending down, it's actually decreasing in the United States today, is because oil is very cheap. And remember, what makes something recyclable is if it could be done at a profit. And if oil is cheap, less things can be recycled at a profit. And if there's places to sell the recycled material to, the demand markets, and most of the, the recycled material from the United States has been going to China, and China has shut down the ability to export waste for quite a while now, and that makes it much harder for recyclers to export materials. And as such, way less things are being recycled in the U.S. today than, than ever before. It, it's, it's quite a big crisis. That's the, mass, uh, the macro trend. Now, if you want to do something about it, the best thing to do 
is purchase products that are durable and long lasting. Then if that's not possible, buy um, disposable products, but make sure you're buying things that can be easily locally recycled. And here's the easy answer to that. Clear plastic, clear, rigid plastic, aluminum, simple paper, those are the things that are readily recyclable. Because many times, you know, recycling centers will say, put everything in the bin and they'll sort out for you what is valuable, but they'll end up sorting less than half of what you put in the bin. So just because a recycling center says, put it in the bin, doesn't mean it's gonna be recycled. Focus on clear or white, rigid plastics, simple plastics and uh, aluminum and paper. And then if that's not an option for you, then at least try your very, very best to find alternative recycling models. You know, TerraCycle's one and there's others out there where you can at least get those hard to recycle things recycled. For sure. We'll be sure to keep that in mind and practice those things. Is there anything else you feel like most people don't understand about recycling that we should know? Gosh, there's quite a bit. <laughs> Go <laughs> for it. A whole big conversation on it. I think here, here's some of the tidbits. Many people, there's a big difference between diversion and recovery. So what's put in the recycling bin versus what's actually recycled is way less than people think. So the important thing is to, you know, call your local recycling center and ask them, what is actually, what actually are you recycling today? And that's what they actually have end markets for. It's also, I think, the simple things to understand in recycling is something like color. If you buy a colored plastic, it cannot decolor. So color is only added together, sort of like when kids paint with paint, it becomes brown in the end. So you can't de-brown the brown, for example. So try to buy plastic that doesn't have a lot of color in it because that makes it much lower chance of it being recycled, if any chance at all. And then from there, I've, uh, if you're interested more in these topics, I've written a number of books on these. Um, uh, Outsmart Waste uh, is a good example that you can you know, read to, to brush up on this. And we have a new one coming out in October called The Future of Packaging, which goes into it even deeper. Um, but there's also good resources out there to learn about. Awesome. We'll be sure to link to those in the show notes. Um, and, you know, right now we're at a point where we clearly have a global waste problem. On the one hand, consumers are buying and tossing things out more quickly than ever. Products themselves are often designed to have a linear life cycle. And our waste management right now can also improve a lot to be able to handle the things that we toss out. So looking back, what do you think allowed us to even get to where we are today in terms of the scale of our waste issues? It's that disposability caught on in the 1950s in an epic way and infiltrated everything. And it did that because disposability is convenient and cheap. And those are the most powerful forces, much more powerful than the force of responsibility, than doing the right thing, than taking care of others. We are selfish, right? We need to accept this, by the way. You know, human beings are selfish and they're gonna focus on things that are make their lives better in a cheaper way. So convenience and affordability took over. So let's acknowledge that. That started in the 1950s and that's what began this waste issue. To solve it, we need to come up with things that don't produce waste, that are more convenient and cheaper. And that's the challenge uh, to do and it's very solvable. It's not an impossible challenge. Mm -hmm. So do you think instead of trying to get people to buy less and buy better, it's, it's important to build sustainability into the concept of disposability because that's it feels like that's what is convenient for people. Yes, look, I have been preaching for 15 years to, you know, to buy less, buy not, you know, uh, buy better. I, those are the right answers. But the reality is, you know, disposability gets bigger every year. So it's more we need to come up with ways that are much more responsible that not necessarily continue to be disposable, but play into the virtues of disposability, which is convenience and affordability. Remember, the virtue of disposability is not throwing it away, 
right? That is a man- manifestation of convenience. So what we need to think about is not how do we just maintain disposability, but how do we come up with maybe ways that you buy less, uh, buy more responsibly that happen to be more convenient and cheaper than disposability. And, you know, the sharing economy is a wonderful example of that where you, you know, uh, use the idea, but you don't own the object. So sharing economy. um, And then I guess keeping in mind that people are going to throw things out designing products in a way that makes the products easily recyclable or easily compostable? Easily recyclable. I want to really highlight compostable packaging or products is a huge disaster. Um, it's, uh, it's really smart compostable packaging in countries that have very high levels of litter, like India, Thailand, you know, Southeast Asia, Central America, where there is no waste management because it's better that a compostable bag end up in the ocean than a non-compostable bag. But in developed countries like the U.S., compostable packaging is a total farce because it doesn't compost in landfills. Com- uh, landfills mummify waste because there's no oxygen uh, and no um, uh, air. Oh, sorry, no light and no oxygen, which are needed for composting. And you're talking about bioplastics, right? Yes, bioplastics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like compostable plastics. They're also very challenging in industrial composters. Industrial. It's the only place you can compost a biodegradable pack properly is with an industrial composter. You can't do it at home and in, and in a home compost bin. And industrial composters view this material as a contaminant to compost. So many of them sort it out uh, before they do their composting to get only to the rich organic materials, which is what they really want, like banana peels and coffee grounds. So biodegradable packaging is uh, in developed markets is definitely better if the material is going to end up as litter, but it's, but recyclable is way better than biodegradable, way better. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference too, between like biodegradable and special facilities and backyard compostable. It is sure. Backyard compostable is better than biodegradable or than compostable in industrial composting. Most biodegradable Biodegradable plastics are the latter. They're compostable industrial composting, where again, it's viewed as a contaminant. Mm-hmm. In backyard composting, those are, are better, but the but it's still from an LCA point, life cycle analysis point of view, better to create a product and then uh, maintain it as durable or recycle it than it is to degrade it all the way back down to soil, only to have to grow that product from the beginning again. So what would your biggest tips be for us as individuals if we wanted to support a less wasteful and a healthier planet, what would you tell us to do? So as individuals, I would say, stop buying. (laughs) That'd be the first. Then if you do buy, buy used and durable. If you can't find it used and durable, buy new and durable. If you can't find it new and durable, then at least buy stuff that will become recyclable and try to avoid buying things that are disposable and not recyclable. And if you do, then, you know, check out TerraCycle and at least recycle those things through us. Well, what's next for TerraCycle that we can look forward to and support? So in January, we're launching a brand new platform uh, that's all about doing what I've been uh, describing, which is moving people to a durable lifestyle while actually making it more convenient and cheaper than disposable. Now, I can't say much more about it uh, than that for now, but it'll be all announced in January. So stay tuned. And where can we go to follow you online and on social media to stay posted? You go to TerraCycle.com and then from there you can link over to our various social media pages. And if you're listening to this outside the U.S., TerraCycle does operate in 21 countries. So if you go to TerraCycle.com, you can then select country and go to your own country. 
Before we go into our final five, I wanted to reveal another detail about our 2019 Green Dreamer planners that'll likely launch in December. I've mentioned they'll include all of our major environmental awareness days to keep us on track, that there'll be one easy self-care and sustainability action step we can take and cross off every single week, and that there'll be yearly, quarterly, and monthly goal-setting guides that I put together based on the research of what it takes to actually accomplish our goals. And the new detail I'll share with you is that, you know, we inevitably sometimes feel more motivated and sometimes less motivated, sometimes slow and just uninspired. It's definitely okay and necessary to have those moments, but to help us get through them more quickly, I've also sprinkled some inspirational and motivational quotes throughout the planner, including some from our past guests. Hopefully this will be another gentle way to keep us inspired and activated throughout the year because we really need you to thrive in every way that you can for you, for your loved ones, and for our world. If this sounds like it'd be helpful to you for planning out your 2019, make sure to sign up for our newsletter at greendreamer.com, where I'll be making the first announcement when these limited planners launch. For now, though, to our final five. Let's power through. What's one inspiring publication or social media account you follow? One of my favorite books was uh, Natural Capitalism by Paul Hawken. Uh, definitely a worthwhile read on this topic. Mm-hmm. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? That uh, it's the only thing that will ever, ever lead to change. What's one must do for your health, either daily or weekly? Play with my kids. What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably? Trying to live a durable life. What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? <laughs> Uh, that's a tough one. I'm not so, um, but um, people agreeing that, that the environment's in crisis. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as green dreamers? Well, now's the time. So stop thinking and start doing. Stop thinking, start doing. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. You can find the two tweetable key takeaways from this interview as well as links and resources at greendreamer.com slash 79 for episode 79. You can reach me with feedback on how I can improve the show for you through the website's contact page. And you can follow me on Instagram at Kamea Shane. Finally, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.